Welcome to Heavy Wireless. My name is Keith Parsons, and today I have Nick Turner and Francois Vergès. Hopefully I pronounced your French name right there, Francois. And we're talking about automation for Wi-Fi engineers. And I'd like just to jump right in. And Nick, you want to tell us about how you got started in automation? Absolutely. So there are kind of two projects that I took on personally. Learn Python to begin with, you know, pick up some of the basics, and then how do I automate this task? I didn't want to learn Python for the fun of learning Python. I have enjoyed it along the way, but I actually had a goal I needed to achieve. And uh, my two projects that got me into automation was the addition of text to photographs. That was the kind of first project. I had lots of pictures, and I wanted to add a bit of text to all of them. And that was going to take a long time to do it through Photoshop. So I needed a way to automate that. And uh, then you know, skip forward a few years. I have now performed some automation tasks with image recognition and Python to control access uh, to my house for my pet cat. And so your pet cat, if it's a different cat, it won't open the door? Actually, it's more complex than that. Uh, for me, so my, my cat door in the UK, they're called cat flaps, but my cat door has a, a chip scanner. So if my cat approaches the door, it will unlock and let him in. But And if another cat approaches the door will not unlock, so other cats cannot get in. But my dive into the world of uh, image recognition was in order to prevent my cat bringing in dead animals, or live animals, in fact, anything in his mouth. So uh, I had to collect a lot of imagery and train a model and then figure out how am I going to make this Raspberry Pi do all of these calculations. But essentially, if my cat approaches the door with nothing in its mouth, the cat flap operates as normal and he's allowed in. And if he approaches with something odd in his mouth, then a, a 3D printed bar shoots across in front of the door and, and then he can't get in for five minutes. There's a cool down period. Has your cat learned this new trick? He has not stopped trying to bring them in, but I think it has changed his behavior slightly. It has not been a clear cut. Oh, he's learned that now he can no longer bring mice into the house. At, no. at least he keeps the <laughs> mice out of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Francois, how did you get involved in automation? For me, it started in university. I did a lot of programming. And at the time, I didn't really enjoy it. I guess they were just asking us to do too much stuff. And it wasn't really my thing. But at that time, I got a lot of foundation on, on programming. So I, I learned a lot of different programming languages. I learned how to structure the, the application. I learned about databases and all of these things that can be useful when you need to get into it. And then I stopped doing that for maybe 10 years. I was just doing networking. One day I attended the ECSE advanced class a few years back. And then I got exposed to some of the Python automation stuff. And I was like, oh, that can be useful for my job. And I started to look at a few things. And just like Nick, I think the important part with automation when you get started is to have like an end goal in mind, something that you want to achieve. And it, it makes the process of learning way more practical. And you stick to it because if you're just reading a book and doing like random exercises, you know, maybe you'll be excited for two exercises, but then after a little while, you kind of lose the motivation to kind of continue. If, if you make it your only project and you see that this project will help you with your day-to-day -day job, it's a, a lot easier to learn. So I started to do a few projects where I would kind of extract images from files or add images into different files. or I would uh, reorganize, you know, folders. I remember doing a couple of things for our podcast as well, where we would automatically create like file structures and stuff like this. That's how it, it started for me in the um, network world, I guess. I just wanted to 
automate some of the tasks that I was doing using programming. And, and most of them were like reporting or clicking tasks. And you guys know that if you were working with like, um, you know, 100 plus AP projects, these clicking tasks can get old pretty fast. That was kind of like my, my idea is how can I optimize my work with a little bit of automation? And then now, you know, today, a lot of vendors have APIs. Uh, they kind of simplify the way we can interact with the systems. So it makes it uh, even more compelling to uh, to use automation. And maybe one thing we'll talk about, maybe Nick that can talk about this, but when you start doing automation, your view of things kind of shifts and then you you start thinking about automating everything. Sometimes it's a little uh, counterproductive, but it also changes your standpoint on, on what you do on a day-to-day basis. I think that point is something I'd like to sort of highlight, actually, that at the beginning of anybody's automation journey, the time spent building that first automation probably is longer than it would have taken you to do the task manually. I remember this was something that I experienced with automating the projects that I have done and also just building Ekahau report templates, same thing. The first templates that I built, the first Python automation projects took longer for me to build the automations than it would have for me to do that laborious task. But the things that I learned as I gained knowledge, and then the next time I needed to do that task, it then took minutes and I had learned more so I could change the way that automation worked and improve the automation and and then start automating other things. Then you start looking at any repetitive process on the computer or outside of the computer as well. You're like, "Ah, how can I make this action repeatable and more efficient next time I need to do it. Well, that leads to the question I was going to ask both of you just a minute ago. What is the logic, the calculus behind, should I sit and do this little click thing over and over for 27 minutes or automate it? A prime example, I get a lot of people, we, we've all taught Ekaha before and used it before. And in any drawing tool, you have to like draw walls because the RF attenuation is going to go into the algorithms. So we have to draw walls. I found when I use automatic wall drawing, it takes me longer to fix the mistakes than it does just to do it right in the first time. So for me, drawing walls is almost cathartic. I kind of enjoy it. And when I'm done, I've had to focus on the walls, and I think more about the building. And it's actually pretty fast. But let's say I did just a a four or five story building. Well, what if that was 20 stories? At some point, there's a break even. How do you figure out what that break even is? Should I do it manual, even though it might be boring, or spend the time to automate? There's got to be some place where there's a break even. Yeah, so I think there's two components to that question. The first one is, you know, the break-even point that you talked about. And the more experience you have, you know, the faster you're going to reach that break-even point. So at the beginning, it might take you more time to get the automation ready and, and usable. So I think what you have to try to envision is, you know, how long will it take me to do the task? And then will this task come back in the in the future on another project or for someone else? You know, will the tool that I'm about to build will be useful for someone else maybe? That's the first one. The second component is, will I be enjoying going through the process of creating the automation, right? Because there's also that big aspect in our job is, you know, do I enjoy doing what I'm doing? So if you enjoy drawing walls more than you enjoy programming, I would say it's probably better to draw walls. But if you think that you can have fun, you know, coming up with the programming piece, it's probably the right way to go. So that's kind of like how I approach it, trying to see if I, I'll be motivated or not. 
I think that was a great summarization. I, I was more flippantly going to say, I often tend more towards, I'm going to enjoy building this automation more than I would doing this repetitive task. It might take me longer, but it doesn't matter. Provided I can spare that time, I'd often prefer to spend more time building the automation. And especially with tools like ChatGPT now dramatically speeding up the time which it'll take me to come to a workable solution. I enjoy that side much more than doing the repetitive task. Nice segue into ChatGTP. You both mentioned Python is the tool of choice that you've both been using. How much has ChatGTP and its derivatives helped you in that process in writing Python code? Yeah, so at the beginning, I wasn't using ChatGPT because it wasn't a thing yet. When it came along, uh, I found it to be, you know, quite useful for programming. It's like, you know, it's it's those tools there. It's been built by programmers. So I think the first use case was, can we help ourselves? So it's, it's actually quite good at uh, programming. You know, what I do when I program is, you know, I think about what I want to do. And then I can ask ChatGPT, you know, how, uh, or you can even ask ChatGPT, can you write me an application that will do X, Y, Z? This is the input that I have. This is the output that I want. Uh, I found that with experience, the more data you give it, the more accurate, like the output would be. And then what I would do is I would take the output of ChatGPT and put it into like a draft document and then kind of see what I can use, what's not useful. And I also challenge ChatGPT, and, and you, you could challenge it and say, okay, I saw you use this library, but what about uh, this library? You know, would that work? And you can kind of go back and forth. And then, like uh, Nick was saying, very quick, you can get to like a working application. And then when you test it on your machine, you will see right away what works, what doesn't work. And the limitation with ChatGPT that I have experienced is that when it doesn't work, you can provide you know all of your error messages and all of this and it will give you some answers but if these answers don't work sometimes they do if they don't then you end up in that loop that circle of you know it doesn't work do this or if this doesn't work do that and then if that doesn't work do this and you go back into the starting point and you end up in this loop so chat gpt is useful to help developers but I think you still need a very good programming foundation to understand what ChatGPT is giving you. Because if you don't, then it's going to be a very frustrating game. Uh, probably going to yeah. give up. Yeah, I agree. I, I find it interesting because the output that ChatGPT generates is really good. It even explains what each part of the code that it generates does. But I never read it. I haven't got time. Like in that moment, what I want is ChatGPT, how do I do this thing? Give me some code. And then you grab it and you throw it into your IDE and, and test it. And then it blows up. And then you then you go back to ChatGPT and you work with it. I do think it's really important to grasp what the script that ChatGPT generated is trying to do. And then you use that. So I think of ChatGPT now as a tool that I use, and it helps me a lot with the structure of some of my scripts. I might not have started off building a script the way ChatGPT suggested, but I take what ChatGPT has produced and I build on top of that and add more bits that I, I wish to. But it gets things wrong. If you don't know anything about what you're doing, I think you, you could burn a lot of time chasing your tail with ChatGPT code. It sounds like you're suggesting that might not be where you start. I think so. Or ask ChatGPT for some simple tasks 
and then deeply understand, like spend time with that output and understand like, why did ChatGPT do this? And, and how do the, these components come together? I guess the other thing that we should say clearly about ChatGPT, the, the fantastic part is that you can describe the task you're trying to achieve in natural language. I don't need to use any technical terms whatsoever, but I can write in text. I am trying to take a folder full of pictures. I want to take the date at which they were taken from the metadata, and I want to stamp that onto the image in the bottom right-hand corner in a font that's size 16 in white. And then it will generate code that will essentially do that. And I think that's very useful for these very niche requests. Whereas if I asked Google either that whole sentence or just components of it, I'd have to spend a lot of time assembling chunks of code written by other people, whereas ChatGPT will do most of it for me. Well, our audience is mostly Wi-Fi people or wireless in general, either IoT or that kind of wireless. What kind of projects would you suggest someone start on? Historically speaking, in networking, we used to interact with network equipment using SSH. But you can also do this with Python. So you could kind of use like a, this uh, NetMiko library that allows you to connect to a network equipment using SSH. And then you send it a command and then you, you analyze the output and you could kind of automate the old task the new way. The problem with this is that you're still connecting via SSH to the device, or so sometimes you're not getting the, uh, the the response when you expect it to be. Sometimes it takes longer. And then to parse the output, it's also a tedious task to do, and it doesn't always work. So it's not the best way to get introduced to Python, I guess, I would say. But today, on the other end, we have the new set of equipment that have APIs. It's a lot easier to actually get some data from our network equipments when they support some sort of API. So I think I would get started with some sort of you know vendors that have APIs available, just so you can see if you can connect to you know an API or uh, connect to a switch and try to see what type of data you're getting. And actually today you don't even need programming for that. You can use application like Postman to do these kind of first steps. And if you use Postman, you'll get introduced to, you know, what a token is. You know, why do I need to get authenticated when I'm sending a request? You know, what do I need to kind of set up before I can even talk to my equipment? And then in Postman, they have a feature that says, can you kind of translate this request into Python? And they can copy and paste that into a Python file and, and, and start there, I guess. But I, I would say... The easiest way to get into automation today in Wafa would be working with some vendors that have uh, some sort of APIs, and it makes the process a little easier. Yeah, you've mentioned APIs. I don't know whether we want to go into any more detail on what APIs are. Generally speaking, I find APIs a little bit scary. I do interact with APIs, and I, and I do need to dedicate more time into really understanding them, because I feel like the term API encompasses an incredibly wide variety of requests that you can make and responses that you can get. And some of those are really simple. Like, for example, for me, is my cat flap locked? Yes or no. I send that request out and I get an answer. It's, it's now locked or no, it's now not locked. But sometimes those outputs are enormous. You can get thousands of lines of response out of that. And then you need to play with it and pass that output. I also find Postman to be quite confusing as well. I flip-flop between, do I just write a little bit of code in Python in my IDE and just send the, uh, the API request and then look at the output inside my IDE? Or do I go and 
spend some time with Python. And mostly because I can't with authentication and tokens, that sort of that stuff was a much easier inside Postman. When I say much easier, I still had to like fight with the tool. Do you find Postman to be intuitive? Yeah, I mean, maybe not the very first time around. It looks like a little overwhelming, but once you know, you know, where to put all of your settings and your IDs and your tokens and stuff, then mm-hmm. you can use that. They have something called the environment. So you can create your environment with all of your your variable. And then for any request, they have like a drop down menu and you can select the proper environment. So you could have like an environment for your lab, an environment for one customer you're working with, and you can kind of toggle back and forth between these kind of variable. So once you know how to do this, it makes it much easier. We are on an audio podcast. Uh, If you could describe IDE and API and what is Postman, how about we just back up a little bit and describe some of those terms. Postman is the person that delivers the mail, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Postman is an application that you can install on your machine, uh, Windows, Mac, or they also have like a web version available as well. But essentially, it allows you to send any um, HTTPS uh, or HTTP request that you want. So it's an easier way to interact with uh, APIs, RESTful APIs. They also have support for other type of APIs. But for the most part, we work with RESTful APIs. So what you can do in a user interface is kind of specify which URL you're targeting, which system you're talking to, and send these HTTP uh, requests. And then you can study the response that you get from the API that you're interrogating. You also mentioned a token. So what is a token used for in this API process? The token is a way to authenticate yourself because you remember you're making these requests over the internet. So just to make sure that not everyone can make any request they want to anything, when you make these requests, you have to authenticate yourself. You have to say, okay, I'm allowed to do this and I'm allowed to get an answer from you. That's like one of the way you can authenticate yourself is by providing a token that you've generated on the API and prior to sending your request. And Nick, IDE? IDE is interactive development environment. That's a generic term for whichever environment you wish to use to create your code. Uh, There are many out there. If you install, say you're running a Mac and you download Python, the very latest version, and you install all of the extra applications that come with that installer, you get something called Idle. And that's what? Interactive development learning environment. Um, But the same idea. If people were looking to where to start, I recommend for simple scripts, there's a Mac application called Code Runner, which is really lightweight and does a good job. That's a good place to start. But I now use PyCharm for my Mac. It's just the interface in which you write code and that you can also execute the code, but it comes with some helpful features, you know, things like syntax highlighting. Although when you open parentheses, it'll add a close parentheses for you, which is sometimes helpful, sometimes not when you're writing code. So the IDE is just how you interact with all of your scripts. You do not need an IDE to write Python. You could open up um, a text editor and write very simple Python scripts and then open up your terminal and execute that Python script. You'll print the output into your terminal window. So don't be put off by you know, an overwhelming IDE. You can make this as complex or as simple as you wish to. We, and we always probably need to talk about API as well, don't we? APIs, the way I usually describe them, it's, it's like a way to talk to an application. Right. So if you have an application that you want to interact with, that specific application will tell you how to interact with it. 
right? It's going to tell you, you know, if you want to get a status on how I'm doing, you need to talk to me that way. If you want to, like in Wi-Fi, for instance, if you want to talk to like a specific site and get the list of APs, you know, the, you need to talk to me that way in order to get that information. So it's like a, a series of, we call them endpoint, but it's like definitions or URLs that you can use to interact with the system. Uh, so you actually know how to talk to the system. Sounds like a very sophisticated SNMP. Yeah, but it's customizable. So whoever is creating the application can customize the API. So they can say, you know, I'm creating this application and I'm now creating that endpoint. So whenever you want, you can get the list of APs, right? So it's like customizable to the application that you're building. Another way of thinking about it would be something like a weather API. So if you go to the weather website, you get all of the weather information served up in a website and there's pictures everywhere and lots of text. But what the API would let you do is make a request that says, I'd like to know what the temperature in Pool Dorset, UK is. And you structure that API request correctly and you send it to the endpoint hosted by this weather website and you just get the answer 24 degrees. And that sounds really simple and bare basic. Like, why would I want that? And uh, as a user, you might not want just a number that says 24 degrees. But if you're a developer or you're trying to do some smart automation, then you don't want to try and filter out the data that you want from the service that you're talking to. You just want that one piece of data. API is application programming interface. It's the way of asking very specific questions and getting as specific an answer as possible. And then to follow up on the API, if you had like missed APIs allow you to then change the SSID or the transmit power, any of the metrics that you might want to change in a web interface, you can automate that process. Sounds like it could be dangerous. Is there any fear that you might use an automation to make really big errors? Yes, it's a fear. Yeah, it's that's why sometimes when I talk about automation, especially in the networking industry, you know, we're always like super careful about what we do. We schedule our change. We have redundancy for everything because the infrastructure is, is critical uh, for the business. But usually what I tell people is if you start doing scripting against networking devices, just make sure you test it into a lab environment and also make sure you understand what you're doing uh, because automation can be great in both directions. It can be great if you build something efficient. It would be greatly efficient. But if you build something inefficient or something that will create problems, then it can go very fast in the other direction as well. So I guess when you create application, also something you can do is you can build all of the passive element, like the read-only element first, right? And then once you're getting into the writing elements, the modifying the, you know, the power or the SSID, then I guess you'll, you'll have a little bit more understanding of what you're doing at that point. So that can help mm. to just start with the read-only first, getting information, and then after that, you, you can start messing yeah, sand, with the data. Start in a sand pit where you can't upset anybody, and mm -hmm. then you can slowly build up. More than just one cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the time for both of you sharing your experience and knowledge. If someone wanted to follow up with either of you, Nick, where can someone track you down? I have a website, uh, which is nickjvturner.com. And uh, you can find me on Mastodon, which is at nickjvturner at mastodon.social. Uh, and those are the two places that I uh, 
post things somewhat irregularly. And and we'll have your contact links in the show notes as well. And Francois? Yeah, so lately for me, I'm, I'm been active on LinkedIn most of the time. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Francois Verges. You can probably find me if you search for my name. Well, I'll give a, the link to Keith if you guys are interested. And then I also have a, a podcast, the Clear to Send podcast that we do uh, with Roel on a regular basis. So if you go to cleartosend.net, then you can see what we do. And we've talked about automation a little bit as well on there. And it seems like you have a pretty decent newsletter that comes out on LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, no, it's, I actually send it via email, the newsletter. Yes. This is for my company, symphionetworks.com slash newsletter. Then you can register for it. Thank you for that, Keith. Well, thank you very much. We've just had a, another episode of Heavy Wireless Podcast, which is part of the Packet Pushers Podcasting Network. Glad to have you here, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.